This message was recorded at Devoted, a Christ Central Festival for all the family. To find out more about Devoted, please visit devotedevent.org. Okay. Good morning. I hope you're feeling warm. I'm feeling fine. It's funny, when you're speaking, your energy levels rise and your metabolism rises. Uh, It's great to see you. This is the third seminar in this stream, but it's a rather different one from the other two seminars we've done. The title is Poverty and Deprivation in the UK, a Priority for the Church. Um, I'll be introducing my colleague in my own church, uh, Karen Williams, who will be taking the second half of the seminar a bit later on. Um, I'll be taking the first half of the seminar, and then we will have some Q&A opportunities um, until our time deadline of 12.30. So thanks for joining us on this rather wet day. Uh, This is a very, very important topic, and I'm really grateful for your attendance. Just a couple of things to say by way of introduction, just to tell you a little bit about the Jubilee Plus team, which I lead. Most of you are aware of Jubilee Plus. Um, And we have a stand here, and a number of my colleagues on my team um, are actually here um, in the venue today. Um, And we've got some literature and information we'd like to give you. This team was commissioned by New Frontiers Churches UK a number of years ago um, to help serve our churches and other denominations in terms of social engagement of churches. And we have a variety of different initiatives And the thing I particularly want to draw your attention to is our national conference, which is taking place on the 10th of November in Wimbledon in London. Um, It's about our eighth national conference. We travel around the country. If you've never been to one, can I encourage you to consider yourself invited by me today? Very rich stream of seminars, an outstanding visiting speaker, the Bishop of Burnley, who's the Anglican lead on um, church developments and church planting in deprived areas across the UK, an issue that we're looking into very extensively at the moment. So I want to just encourage you to engage with Jubilee Plus. Have a look at our website. There's lots of resources there. We're doing research. We're doing training. And of course, the books. I noticed one of the books being coming up on the screen. Someone uh, sitting next to me just uh, noticed it before I even noticed it. Um, But I want to encourage, I'm going to refer today in my talk to the two books I've co-authored with my colleague Natalie Williams, who's on the Jubilee Plus team, A Church for the Poor, as mentioned earlier on. But also I will refer this morning to our earlier book, The Myth of the Undeserving Poor. And I'll explain why I'm referring to those because I'm going to use material from both of those books Um, But I would encourage you to get hold of those books. They're available electronically. They're available in the bookstore, I've noticed. Um, And so I want to encourage you to uh, get hold of those resources if that is of interest to you. Um, So we're going to talk this morning about the issue of uh, poverty. It's a very emotive issue uh, in politics It's quite a sensitive issue sometimes even in church circles and it raises a number of fundamental questions about economics, about culture, about social attitudes, about media, about personal perception and experience, about class issues, about race issues. There's a whole series of complex 
interfaces that come in our mind when we think about the issue of poverty. And I want to just address in this first section um, two fundamental issues, two primary things to think about. Obviously, we live in a developed and rich country in general terms. And so when we start talking about poverty, we immediately have to frame the discussion within the context of the wider world. Now, I'm very much an internationalist. I travel widely. I work in Africa. Um, I've lived in two different developing countries, South Africa and Pakistan, in different eras of my life. So I'm very familiar with the fact that in the developing world, in many parts of the world, we have tremendous crises of poverty that can be described in real terms as absolute poverty. People in fundamental human needs, their survival is at stake. And it is uh, obvious that we should be fundamentally concerned about this and engaged. And I am personally, my church is, and I guess you are. Now, the situation we find in Britain doesn't fall into that category by and large, with one or two tiny exceptions of failed asylum seekers and other small groups of people. But in general, the issue in our culture is what we could describe as relative poverty. And the, 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 the question we have to face is, how important is relative poverty? So poverty relative to the society you live in, poverty relative to the um, geographical area you're in, poverty relative to your neighbours, a poor area relative to a rich area in a particular town or city, poor children at school, rich children at school. Now, that's the kind of environment that we are negotiating. And I want to just make a fundamental point that the biblical understanding of um, loving our neighbor means that we cannot ignore relative poverty close at hand because absolute poverty exists further away. Because your neighbor is the person you can help. And relative poverty really matters to people in this country in ways that some of you will understand very, very clearly from your own experience and people you've worked with. And so I want to argue at a fundamental level that it is an excuse and a diversion to say the real issues in Africa or India or some other country. The real issue is wherever poverty is, there is a challenge and an opportunity for the church and a call to exercise God's grace and compassion. So I make this fundamental point. I've argued it in the second book, and you can read more about it there in chapter 2 of the second book if you're interested. I'm just saying absolute and relative poverty are both priorities. We can't just overlook the neighbor in the next street because we're thinking of the child in need in India. Both are important. Now, the second thing that I want to say by way of an introductory comment is really just to talk about how our attitudes are shaped in this country. Many Christians are not fully aware to the extent to which their own attitudes, as well as the attitudes of their neighbors, are shaped by our media. The media is a very powerful organ of communication and culture shaping in its many different forms. I think you probably agree with that. But we probably filter the media's messages less than we realize. 
And so in our first book, which I conceived um, as something that our Jubilee Plus team was beginning to face, which was a social attitudes issue, we, uh, our first book entitled The Myth of the Undeserving Poor, we did a, a media survey. We took um, all the media output in a one-month period in 2014 after the first showing of the documentary Benefit Street, if you remember that, when it, when it first came out. For four weeks afterwards, we, we analyzed 390 media articles from 10 different representative sources to find out what messages are we hearing about poverty. And we noticed a number of things, and they're recorded in the book, and there's not time to go into it in detail. We noticed a tendency in different types of media to describe the poor, so to speak, as the other, the outside, the people who you are talking about from a distance. And we also noticed that people suffering poverty in different ways were given very little voice in the media, unless their voice was a slightly skewed one which supported the media narrative in the first place. So hearing the voices of people wasn't taking place. And so um, I just want to suggest to you that we have to be careful that our attitudes to people uh, in poverty are not shaped by the media, and we don't follow a narrative that's growing in our, in our nation, which has been growing in the last decade, in my opinion, which is to divide people in need into two categories, the deserving and the undeserving. There's no fundamental Christian foundation for making that distinction. So here are a couple of primary points uh, just to indicate the direction of travel um, of uh, the thinking that we're adopting. Now, there's a second issue of analysis which I think is important, which is how do you actually define poverty in this country? We set aside the rest of the world for a moment, and so we just talk about our own nation. And there have been two very different methodologies used to define what we mean by poverty. The, one, the first one is based on income. And... Um, a measure that's been used in the past by the government and has been used by research organizations and has been favored by many people is to, to define poverty um, by analyzing the income levels of every household in the country. And um, if you put every household in a single line and you just found the household that's in the middle, that's the median uh, in, this, uh, in this way of statistical analysis, if you take the median... Um, income and you just say what's the median income that's the middle of the nation so to speak um, and then you take 60% of that figure 60% of that disposable income figure and then that becomes the poverty line now the, as the figures stand at the moment according to the office of national statistics the median income is 27300 pounds and 60% of that is £16,400. So according to that analysis, if your household income is £16,400 or less, you are to some degree in poverty. Now, there's a problem with this analysis. It's useful, but it's not particularly useful, I don't think, because, or, or not particularly decisive, because it takes, doesn't take into consideration the living costs in the particular location. 
which varies so dramatically that £16,400 in Teesside for a household means something fundamentally, fundamentally different to what it means in London or some other location. So that analysis has not been wholly persuasive um, because of that contextual difficulty. It's useful, but I would say it's not decisive. So in chapter two of the second book, um, A Church for the Poor, I've developed a second form of analysis, which I've taken from the most extensive research into poverty ever conducted in the UK, to my knowledge, by um, it, the, it's called the Poverty and Social Exclusion Research Partnership. A number of academic institutions have been working for many years doing some detailed research on poverty. And you can access this on the website poverty.ac.uk. And they've basically looked at a different criterion, which is public perception of what it means to live viably. What does it mean to live viably in our society according to general social norms? So what they've done, and you can look up all the research here, they've done a number of reports, but what they've done is they've asked a very a representative sample of the general public on quite a large scale, what things do people need to live viably? And uh, come up with a number of criteria, and they said, well, if um, three or four of these criteria are not met, then this, this family or person is moving into deprivation. Can I just give you some examples? We haven't got time to go into this in detail. A warm, waterproof coat, rather relevant today. The ability to uh, be able to afford to attend important events like weddings or funerals and the like. Meat or fish or vegetarian equivalent every other day. Curtains or window blinds. Household contents insurance. Enough money to keep your home in a decent state of decoration. Appropriate clothes for job interviews. A table and chair at which all the family can eat, etc., now, we haven't got time to go into this in detail, but these categories and criteria are things that most of us would think are really important to live viably. And so they've analyzed poverty in terms of not just the income, but how the income attains to viability in our society. And the results have suggested um, that we have some serious difficulties. For example, the latest survey in 2012 suggested that 4 million people in the UK are not properly fed, that 2.5 million children live in homes that are damp, and about 2.3 million households cannot afford to heat their living areas effectively, and that over 30 million people live in financial insecurity for one reason or another. So, these are rather stark statistics. And so my assertion is that many people in our country are not able to live viably, and that really matters. And so it's therefore an important issue for the church. Now, here's another contextual thing. We also need to have a sort of more of a macroeconomic view of our country and try and work out what's been going on in, in recent decades. 
because we live in the legacy of an ever-growing and developing welfare state, which after its inception formally in the, in the late 1940s, has grown and expanded its influence and capacity all the way through the second half of the 20th century, and up, up to and including the new Labour administration of Tony Blair and, to, to a lesser extent, of Gordon Brown. And we noticed in that period the church's uh, role in society and social provision diminishing as the welfare state increased. Um, and, but the last great era of the welfare state, in my opinion, was the first decade of the new Labour government, 1997 to 2007 which was quite ambitious in terms of developing social provision. But the financial crisis of 2008 put a stop to all that very suddenly and very dramatically. Now, time has gone on, and this is a decade ago. To me, it's as vivid as yesterday because I could see what was happening and I can now see the outcomes of what's happening. The financial crisis and the, the fragility of our financial institutions and the gigantic eye-watering sums used by government to bail out financial institutions and to stabilize our financial structure was such that our sovereign national debt began to increase at an enormous rate unprecedented in a peacetime environment that government borrowing should increase at such a rate. In fact, I'm just going to quick, quickly flip forward to this uh, chart here. The UK national debt, according to the Office of national, national Statistics, stood in the year 2000 at around 400 billion, no small figure. But by 2008 or 9, it was moving towards 800 billion, and now we're talking about 1,800 billion um, pounds that, it, that is our sovereign national debt. So this graph is fundamentally important to our understanding of what's going on. We have our own little micro-opinions about the government should do more about this or that, put more money into this or that. But the big picture is that the cost of borrowing for our government to sustain the national debt, to service the national debt, has increased since 2008 at an unprecedented level and is still not coming down. It's still slightly going up. We're trying to keep um, a steady uh, account in an annual account, but we're not able to actually reduce the impact of that structural debt. Now, you may well be aware of this, and economics may not float your boat. Sorry about that. But it is part of the story because, you see, in the context of that, we have had what we call the age of austerity. Whatever you feel about the particular political complexions and decisions, I'm not going to go into all that. Um, I want to make a more fundamental point. Whatever government was in power in the last decade would have to face extremely serious decisions about where to put financial resources because of the disproportionate amount of money that's going to service the national debt. Now, the actual outcome has been that the steady growth of the welfare state has come to a grinding halt and now we have a retraction of the welfare state. And now we have um, reconsidering of uh, how we finance public finances in all sorts of different areas. We have the budget of various government departments associated with welfare, for example, uh, like the, the DWP being reduced 
Uh, we have the NHS under spectacular pressure with no capacity really in our finances to absorb ever-increasing financial growth of the NHS. So we're in an era of government cutbacks and welfare cuts, and it's not showing any signs of coming to an end. And that's because the structural debt behind it is the driving force that we can't really get rid of. Now, the church needs to take on board the fact that we've gone through a kind of cultural revolution concerning welfare, uh, which hasn't really rolled out fully yet, but it's heading that way during the last decade. And it was triggered by one key event, and that was the financial crisis. And so that has a fundamental effect on you and your community and your church and people that you know. And as welfare reform has worked through, we've seen the sudden rise of the food bank movement. Now, people are talking about the food bank movement a lot, but what is easily demonstrable is the trigger for the sudden rise of the food bank movement was the financial crisis. Food banks existed beforehand, but the exponential growth of the Trussell Trust food banks and others is chronologically exactly connected to the financial crisis. So the churches have been catapulted into what I want to describe here as an age of innovation and opportunity. Whatever we think about the state and the welfare state and state provision, we're in, we're in a new environment where it's diminishing. And uh, there isn't any shortcuts to... Um, helping it to uh, develop again. It's just not going to happen. And so the question is, what are we going to do and where are we going to be within this process? Now, as it happened, when I was preparing this talk, I just went online and had a look at some of the news and I noticed that two councils, East Sussex Council and Northamptonshire County Council, have reduced their services to virtually the legal minimum. That's just happened this month. And so we see council provision diminishing, national government uh, 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 provision diminishing, and we see a great opportunity. And so within that process, who are the people who are going to suffer? The people who are economically vulnerable. And many other people, and this is the rider, hardly notice this process because the job is secure and many people are doing reasonably well and uh, employment levels are fairly high in the nation. And so it's very easy not to notice what is actually happening within our communities, which is increasing pressure on the economically vulnerable in all sorts of areas. So we enter into what we are describing as an age of innovation an opportunity to reimagine what the church can do. Now, the second part of our seminar is going to be just a description um, on the ground of one church in action. Um, It's going to be different from your church, um, but seminars are about ideas and about stories and about learning from one another. My responsibility in my local church as an elder, I don't lead the team, is to head up the social action um, uh, projects. We have six or seven different projects. We've actually formulated them into a separate charitable company. So we have Barnabas Community Church and we have Barnabas Community Projects with its own website and its own governance 
and its own employment and its own structure, uh, closely connected to the church, um, running the different projects that we run. So what I want to do now um, is to um, introduce you to my colleague um, who takes a prominent role and just to describe some things that we're doing on the ground, some things we're developing, and some ways of responding to some of these big issues. I've just been giving the headlines, this is national headlines, but local churches are about local communities, about what's happening on the ground where you are, what's happening in your case. So uh, my colleague Karen Williams um, uh, has a prominent role leading uh, several of our projects, so could you give a warm uh, welcome to Karen as she comes to continue. Good morning, my name's Karen, Karen Williams, and I project lead Food Bank Plus at Barnabas Community Projects in Shrewsbury. So we have a sign coming round. Okay, there you go. Is that anyone's child? Okay. So what Barnabas Community Projects is our social action projects from our church serving our community, and Food Bank Plus is part of that. So what I want to do is describe what Food Bank Plus actually is. So our food bank, Shrewsbury Food Bank, was set up in 1997, so some 10 years before the Great Recession in 2008, and it was set up to help local people with debt because there were two gentlemen at our church, Martin being one of them and David the other, who recognized that there was a real issue with personal debt. And the food bank looks very different now, but we believe that we're the third oldest in the country. Now, the perception is, is that Shrewsbury is an affluent town and there's very, very little financial poverty. But actually, there's lots and lots of poverty hidden. And we're going to touch on other types of poverty in a moment. Ten years ago, BMA was set up, Barnabas Money Advice, and that comes under Community Money Advice, which some of you may know about, and they are advisors that actually help and advocate people with debts. They will talk to the bailiffs firsthand. They will talk to creditors and actually work with them so the clients don't have to, and it releases that pressure. And the newest area of Food Bank Plus is the 360 Platform for Life project. So this is made up of a range of projects, and I've designed it so that actually we can bolt on projects very easily at later dates. So the first one is 360 Journey to Work. 360 Journey to Work is divided into two areas. The first area is a life skills course, which runs for 10 weeks, and it's primarily aimed at those who are looking to get back into the paid workplace but find that really challenging. Those challenges that they often face are unemployment for years. So people who have not been in the workplace for many, many years. Lots of our clients also face uh, addictions or lack of confidence or just, just extreme anxiety. Most of our clients have mental health issues. Now, we all have mental health, but sometimes our mental health is good and sometimes our mental health is poor. And I think we need to put that in context and remember that actually we all have mental health. It's not just those people there that suffer from poor mental health. And mental health is one of those things that you can't see. I can't look around this room and recognize if you have poor mental health. I can recognize if you've broken your leg, 
But in society, we don't necessarily know who suffers from poor mental health. So the life school course is run with mentors, not advisors. Now, a mentor is somebody who is, and I've, this is a, 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 an explanation of what a mentor is, characterized by mutual respect, trust, understanding, and empathy. Good mentors are able to share life experiences. And that's why we have mentors and not advisors. We come alongside people and work with people, not for them. So the course is made up of 10 weeks and we touch on things like, who am I? Who am I in my community? All the way down to forgiveness and what am I carrying in my bag called life and what am I going to do in the future? The other part of 360 Journey to Work is a Wednesday breakfast drop-in that we run, and that's a weekly event where we never know what's going to happen. It's an open breakfast session where people can just turn up with anything, and we, we really don't know what's going to happen that morning. So sometimes we can be overwhelmed with people, sometimes we can be really quiet, depending on the weather. So just this week, I made a list of what we dealt with this last Wednesday. Okay, so... First of all, with one young man, we had a practice phone call so that he could arrange a job interview. Uh, Another person, we actually helped her get a duplicate birth certificate because she's just been made homeless. And on the first night out, her bag was stolen and she lost all her ID. We helped somebody else build a CV. We gave interview practice to somebody else. And then another young woman, we started to consider how she might get access to her children um, because the family's been estranged, because she went into the local um, mental health units and her children were taken away and she's desperate to see her teenage children. So they're the types of issues we're dealing with as as well as form filling and stuff like that. The other aspect of 360 is our journey to health program and that's made up of our 360 back garden and 360 cookery project. Both of these projects are very, very gentle, and they really, really focus on the soft skills. So it's about confidence building. It's about helping people realize they're worthy to even come through the doors, because most of the clients that come to that don't even think they're worth coming to our look at our back garden and being part of that. Um, almost all of our referrals for that come through the mental, local mental health team at the hospital. Um, To give you an example, there was one young lady who came with her mum to have a look at our back garden, which is a shed, and we do um, building, we do uh, woodwork and uh, gardening as well in raised beds and things in our car park, so it's quite exciting. Um, And she had been, she'd visited with her mum, and yet on the first session, she took 40 minutes to come through the gate. So she didn't want me to meet her at the gate, so we're texting for 40 minutes to each other, and she's standing outside the gate because she didn't have the confidence to come through the gates. That's the type of situation we're dealing with. She is not poor in the monetary sense. She has more than enough money to live on. She, she suffers from other forms of deprivation. Another lady who's a mum did our cookery project. Again, she's actually very wealthy. She sends her children to private schools, and her husband is a doctor at the local hospital but she has no friends. And so her poverty looks very different to a monetary poverty. And that's what we're going to focus on now. I want to, Martin's talked a lot about monetary poverty. 
And what I want to do is just touch on three other forms of poverty. There are a lot more, but I just want to touch on three. Okay? This is poverty of skills, poverty of opportunity, and relational poverty. So um, I'd like to tell you a story about some pets. I have quite a few pets, um, but I have some ducks, and they're beautiful. If you ever want some cute pets, get some ducks if you can. They are so lovely. But anyway, we, have, um, we live in the middle of some fields, and our local fox decided he was hungry and ate two of our ducks. So one morning I woke up to our one remaining duck at the back door, tapping on the window because she was so lonely. Okay, so my heart melted, and like an idiot, I spent the whole Saturday looking for a replacement duck so she would have a friend. Managed to find one. It was very expensive, and I bought this new duck to our pond. We've got a little tiny pond. Um, And the new duck, who ironically is called Duck Duck, because she's Duck 2, the first duck is called Duck, okay? So... Duck Duck is let out of her box and stands by the pond. And Duck, number one duck, is in the pond, swooping around, showing Duck Duck, this is the life. This is what your life could look like. Number two duck, Duck Duck, stands on the side of the pond, is terrified to go in the water. I don't think she'd actually ever seen water of this expanse before. And it really is about three foot. It's not very big. And there's a, you know, I think all they'd have was a bucket. So she wouldn't go in the water. It took two weeks for her to venture into the water because she was so frightened. And then it took another week for her to actually go from the shallow end where she just puts her feet in to actually go to the deep end. She's now a fully fledged duck and she's in the pond all the time. And she's very broody at the moment. She's sitting on eggs. But that just shows that... um, Some people have a real fear to try new things or they don't have the confidence to try what life could look like for them. So for that duck, they were living, they were existing, they weren't really living. They weren't living life to the fullest sense. And I think lots of people live like that. They don't have the skills to live as perhaps we anticipate what life could look like. So poverty is defined by the Rountree Foundation in their UK Poverty Report 2017 as when a person's resources are well below their minimum needs, including the need to take part in society. I'm going to repeat that because this is so important. When a person's resources are well below their minimum needs, including the need to take part in society. Now, I don't think resources is just money. Resources is how we are as people, what skills we have, what financial resilience do we have, what opportunities do we have. They're all resources that we can call upon. Hands up if, now some of your batteries may have faded as you're camping, but hands up in the last week if you have used some sort of digital tool, whether that's a smartphone, a laptop or computer, hands up. Okay, I want you to be really brave. Now, hands up if you have not used anything digital in the last week. Okay, we are a really unusual group. We do not represent society. Okay? One in four people, that's 12 million people in our country, cannot use basic digital skills. So we do not represent our communities. 
That's fundamental to life. So I'm going to ask, uh, you all had your hands up, so you're all in... What have you done? Well, I work with my laptop. I've got... Okay. So if you didn't have a laptop, could you work? No. What have you done? Uh, laptop and uh, mobile phone, smartphone, yeah. And what have you done on that? Um, uh, I've done all my finances. All your finances. Okay. Um, finances as well on my phone, The Guardian, The Times... So you've done lots of reading. Okay, and one more. You're nodding your head. Fatal mistake. I was just going to say the same thing, but reading the Bible. Oh. Okay, so we've all used something digital. So can you imagine life not having access to something digital? So one of the things we did on a Wednesday drop-in, this really clever guy came in, he's really talented, but he doesn't know how to use the computer to buy train tickets. So he's going to the train station to buy train tickets at high cost rather than buying them at low cost in advance on the computer. And that's something we've taught them to, that chap to do. Also, there's a lack of softer skills. So you could actually have the confidence to talk to me when you've got a microphone shoved in your face. A lot of people can't do that. Um, you might, I can see some people actually having eye contact. Fewer people now because they re they're worried about the microphone. But people can have actually eye contact. And I'm sure afterwards, many of you will have the confidence to actually be able to talk to other people. A lot of people can't do that. And I think we forget about those people because they are hidden in their houses and they don't come out. And this is what we see in an affluent place like Shrewsbury. That then leads to poverty of opportunity. So the opportunity to take part in life, the opportunity to do things that you really want to do, but you cannot. So for example, if you want to get a job, where would you go and look for a job? More time. Well, I'd go online. Ah, we'd go online. Where would you go to look for a job? I'd walk around to businesses and I'd turn my CV in. Okay, so you, that means you can build a CV, so you're very talented. So if you were looking for a job, where would you go? Online. Okay, so we've had two, uh, two onlines. We've had somebody actually being able to build a CV and actually hand it out and have the confidence to do that. Suppose you can't do that. You are missing out on opportunities. Eight out of ten jobs are not actually advertised. So what's the impact? If they're not advertised and you don't know the right people to go and get that job or you don't have the confidence to get that job, barriers are shooting up and opportunities are disappearing. Apparently only 1.7% of small businesses advertise at the local job centre. 1.7%. The issue with that is that 84% of businesses are small businesses and only 1.7% of those are advertising at the job centre. So if the only place you can look for work is at the job centre, you've got very little chance of getting a job and certainly a good quality job. We had one chap that we were working with on our Journey to Work programme and he was a trained accountant and he was having to get cleaning jobs because the only place he could look for work was at the job centre. He was walking 90 miles a week to us and a part-time job that he had um, because he couldn't afford public transport. Can you see how suddenly monetary poverty 
links in with poverty of opportunity and life skills as well, lack of skills. I had a friend um, who decided to live on what people receive in benefits for a whole month. And she did it as an experiment to see what it feels like to see what she had to go through. It was really, really interesting because at the end of it, I grilled her and she said it wasn't the lack of money that was the issue. Actually, what the issue was, was the lack of opportunity and the relationship starting to break down. So her friend had a birthday breakfast at Starbucks and she couldn't go because she didn't have enough money to go. And she recognized that actually after about six months of doing this, she only did it for a month and her friends were with her. They knew what she was doing. She recognized that had this been going on for about six months, she probably wouldn't have many friends left because actually they would give up asking her to go to Starbucks. They would stop paying for her to go to Starbucks with them as well. The third poverty I want to look at is relational poverty. Now, to me, this is probably one of the most important poverties that we need to take notice of. I want you to introduce you to Adam. Um, That's not his real name. And when he first came to us about two years ago, that was the person he related to, his work coach at the local job center. That was the only person he related to. So I'd like you to imagine now your life and the only person you talk to ever is your work coach at the job centre. Now I know that particular work coach and we get on really well. She referred Adam to the uh, 360 Garden Project and he had the courage to actually come to that. He then decided he would do the 360 Journey to Health Cookery Project And he made some new friends. But one of the friends he made at the Garden Project was a guy called Steve. And that's his real name. And he's given me permission to tell his story. So Adam wasn't really suffering from monetary poverty as such. He had just about enough to live on. But he had no one in his life. And I mean no one. Steve wasn't suffering from monetary poverty necessarily. But he was a recovering heroin addict. And when he came to us, he was on methadone and was really struggling to try and, um, you know, help himself get off that. But he had people around him that were supporting him. Adam had no one. And this is what Adam's life looks like now. So he's still with us. He's got friends from the Back Garden Project. He's got friends from the uh, cookery team. He's a volunteer at Food Bank. He, in the first year that we, he was with us, we put him onto a local Christmas meal at another church. Um, a neighbor took him to that who lived about four doors down and he'd never actually met. And he got in the car with a neighbor and went with him to that Christmas dinner. This Christmas, Adam booked that himself because his confidence has grown to the point that he could actually make a phone call on his new mobile phone, because he'd never had a mobile phone before, to arrange a place on that Christmas dinner. And there's Steve, Steve, his friend. Now, Adam's life still looks like this. He doesn't, he's got no parents, and he's got no siblings. Um, But his life, he doesn't have, still have really close relationships Steve's life, he's he's completely off methadone. He still has really close relationships and he's about to get married. 
This is the difference that relationships can have. And I think this is where we, as church, need to consider what we're doing. This isn't just an age of innovation and opportunity. This is where we can step in and we can be social entrepreneurs. We need to think differently. We need to step outside of our comfort zones and think, what can I do to walk alongside somebody, not do it for them? Because I think often the church is very good at doing things for people. But actually, that's not what people want. People want to be able to do the things for themselves. They just need a helping hand to do that. So I leave you with these three questions. As church, are we willing to seize the opportunity that I believe we're being presented with? Are we willing not to see the problems and then just find corresponding solutions? Because that's not good enough. But see opportunities and be real entrepreneurs and being willing to step out of our comfort zones. Are we willing not to do to people, but actually walk alongside them, whatever their circumstances, and for however long it takes, because it will take years? Thank you. Right, well, that's just one story from one church. Uh, with some particular initiatives that we're involved with. They're particular to our community and our skills. There are lots of other issues that we're not specializing in that you might want to discuss. So we have a few minutes now where we can have some question and answer.